I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the text for this morning's message. It's found in the Gospel of John, the 16th chapters. We'll be reading from verses 16 through 24. Please follow along in your own Bibles or in the Bible that's in the pew in front of you. That's John 16, verses 16 through 24. A little while, and you will see me no more. Again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he means. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she is delivered of the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child is born into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Christian hedonists are sometimes asked, are you willing to be damned for the glory of God? That is, are you willing to give up all joy if by doing that God would be more glorified? And the point of the question is to hang the Christian hedonist on one or the other of a dilemma If we say, no, I'm not willing to be damned for the glory of God, then it appears as though we put our happiness above God's glory. And if we say, yes, I am willing to be damned for the glory of God, then it appears that we cease to be Christian hedonists because we're not pursuing our ultimate joy anymore. But the attack fails because the question contains two wrong assumptions. One wrong assumption about hell and one wrong assumption about God. When the questioner asks, are you willing to go to hell for the glory of God? He fails to see that if I answer yes, I am revealing that my deepest longing and strongest desire is that God be glorified, whether by life or by death, and that therefore hell becomes a means to my deepest satisfaction. That's not the biblical view of hell. Biblically, hell is a place where there is no satisfaction irrevocably. 
And therefore, the question contains a contradiction about the very meaning of hell. It's also built on an unbiblical assumption about God. The question assumes that God could conceivably damn a person who is willing to be damned for God's glory. But that's an utterly unbiblical view of God. God's righteous commitment to uphold the value of his glory commits him also to uphold those who love his glory above all things. The God of the Bible cannot damn a person who loves his glory enough to be damned for it. And therefore, the very question, are you willing to be damned for the glory of God, is an offense against the righteousness of God. It forces us, it forces us to entertain as a possibility something that God would be unrighteous to perform. And therefore we dare not, we dare not ask that question, neither to ourselves nor to anyone else. Are you willing to be damned for the glory of God? It broaches blasphemy. Besides that, the critic who's asking the question is missing his target. His target is people who are putting their interests above, God in, above God's interests, who put their happiness above God's glory. And the Christian hedonist most emphatically does not. To be sure, Christian hedonists pursue our interest and our happiness with all our might and with all our soul and with all our mind. But we've learned from the Bible that God's highest interest is to magnify his glory by spilling over his grace onto us for our good. And therefore, the pursuit of our real interest and our true happiness is never above God's interest. It's always in God's interest. God's interest is my joy in him. To pursue my joy in him is to pursue his highest interest. When we humble ourselves like little children and put on no airs of self-sufficiency and turn around and run happily into the embrace of our Father, his grace is magnified. And our deepest longing is satisfied in one act of turning and praying. In God's wisdom, our interest and his glory are one. Christian hedonists are not idolaters for pursuing both of them together. In fact, those who would urge us to rend them and choose the one above the other are at best unbiblical and at worst blasphemers. One of the clearest demonstrations that the pursuit of our joy that the pursuit of our joy is in fact one with the pursuit of God's glory is the teaching of Jesus on prayer in the Gospel of John. 
So I invite you to turn with me to John 16 and to John 14. And I want to to scout about in these chapters of the upper room discourse in John to show you how Jesus teaches us that prayer unites the pursuit of his glory and the pursuit of our joy. First of all, look at John 14, 13. Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So let's mark it down, nail it down, once for all. Our aim and our goal in prayer is the glory of God the Father. And through him, Jesus Christ. Now turn to chapter 16, verse 24. Where Jesus says, Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So mark it down. Nail it down. Once for all. The aim at which we pursue in all our praying is our joy. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the chief act of man whereby these two goals are brought into unity is what? Prayer. Therefore, Christian hedonists who love the glory of God and who passionately pursue their joy in that glory are above all people of prayer. Just like the thirsty deer buckles to drink at the brook, so the characteristic posture of the Christian hedonist is on his knees. Now, if you're like me, the change of pace last summer from all your good resolutions last spring sent your life of prayer into a tailspin. And probably all you need is someone to remind you of the importance of the life of prayer in order for you to begin to get up early again, for you to take that half hour at lunchtime again, perhaps, for you to stay up late and close the day with the Lord again. We need points in our lives to stop and do a mid-course correction, don't we? And they need to be more than the first week of January. We're going to go for broke this January again. It's going to be great that weekend of, uh, I mean, that week of prayer when we resolve all kinds of good things. But here we are at the beginning of the fall, sort of. And uh, the fall has caught us off guard with its hectic nature, hasn't it? And so I just want this morning to be a little mid-course correction. And I'm going to tell you at the end how very practically you can make that correction. But to get ourselves really primed for the 
correction, let's look more closely at how prayer is a pursuit of God's glory and a pursuit of our joy in one. Chapter 14, verse 13. We'll go back to where we started. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Suppose that you are completely paralyzed and that you can't move anything at all except talk. And suppose that a strong and reliable friend says that he will live with you and do everything for you that you can't do for yourself. And then one day you get a guest, a visitor comes, and you want to glorify your strong friend who meets your needs so willingly and completely. How do you do it? You do it by saying when your guest walks in, friend, would you prop me up please and put a big pillow behind me? Adjust my head a little. And would you please get my glasses for me and put them on so that I can see my visitor? Thank you. That's all you do. And your visitor beholds your need and helplessness and how willingly, happily, ably, competently your strong friend provides what you need and he is glorified. Look at John 15 verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you are paralyzed. Without Christ, we are capable of no good thing. But God wills that we bear fruit. For his kingdom, that we love people into the kingdom. And so what does he do? He promises to do for us as a strong and reliable friend what we can't do for ourselves. And how do we glorify him then? Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask. Ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. We pray to God. That's the way he's glorified. We ask him for things. And then the result that we're after emerges in verse 8. By this is my father glorified. That you bear much fruit. That is that he enable you to bear much fruit. So how is God glorified by prayer? Prayer is on the one side is the open admission that we are paralyzed. We can't do it on our own. Praying is the most humbling of all Christian activities. That's why it's so hard to do. And on the other side, prayer looks away from its helpless self up to God and asks for things. Lord, I can't. Please do it for me, through me. And when he does it, who's glorified? The friend 
the competent, all-sufficient, generous, willing friend. There's another text in John. Turn back to John 4, a text which shows again how God and Christ are glorified through our praying to them and asking them for things, what we need. You remember the situation, a woman of Samaria encountered by Jesus who is tired and thirsty and he asks her for a drink of water and she says in verse 9, or it says in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you were a sailor on a ship, severely afflicted with scurvy, and you docked and a very generous man boarded the ship with his pockets bulging with vitamin C. And he asked you for an orange slice. You might give it to him. But if you knew, if you knew his gift, and that his pockets were full of all you need to get well, you would ask him, wouldn't you? You would turn the tables and ask for help. Jesus says to this woman, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who I am, you would pray to me. There's a direct correlation, isn't there, between knowing Jesus well and asking much from him. If you don't ask much, if you don't spend much time in prayer, it is almost proof positive you don't know Him. If you knew Him, you'd ask for living water. A prayerless Christian is like a bus driver trying to push his loaded bus out of a ditch by himself because he doesn't know Clark Kent is on the bus. If you knew, you would ask. A prayerless Christian is like having your your walls wallpapered with Dayton's gift certificates and doing all your shopping at Ragstock because you can't read. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that speaks to you, you would ask. You would ask. And isn't the implication that Christians who spend much time in prayer have seen who He is and what His gift can be and therefore the very praying to Him is the exaltation of Him as one infinitely worthy of trust. Praying magnifies the bounty of our God in heaven. So the chief end of man is to glorify God 
And we learn from Jesus' teaching that when we become people that he created us to be, we become people of prayer. Now, here is the chief end of man that is second to enjoy God forever. That brings us now to chapter 16, verse 24. Go back there with me. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Isn't that an invitation to Christian hedonism? Pursue the fullness of your joy. Pray. Now, from those sacred words and from my own experience, I deduce this very simple rule. Prayerlessness produces joylessness. Prayerlessness produces joylessness. I have never met a person whose life of prayer is rich, who grumble and are down in the mouth, negative, critical. Prayerlessness produces joylessness. Why? God gives two reasons in his word. One comes from chapter 16 of John, verses 20 and 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. He's referring to his crucifixion and then subsequently to his resurrection. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because of her, her hour has come. But when she is delivered of the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child is born into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. What's the source of the disciples' joy? It's the presence of Jesus. I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take it from you. No Christian can enjoy fullness of joy unless he has Vital fellowship with the living Christ. Unless you see Jesus. Knowledge about him will not do. Knowledge about Jesus will not do. Neither will work for Jesus. It's not adequate. It will not suffice. We must have personal, vital fellowship with him. Otherwise, Christianity becomes a joyless burden. John said in his first letter, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, and we write these things to you that our joy may be full. In other words, fullness of joy comes from fellowshipping with Jesus and letting it spill out to other people when you write them letters. Fellowship with Jesus shared with others is essential to fullness of joy. So the first reason why prayer leads to our joy is that prayer is the nerve center of fellowship with Jesus. 
He isn't here to see, is he? If he were, I would sit down, he would stand up. And we would hear him and see him and we would speak to him personally in the physical form. He's not here. How do we communicate with him? In prayer. And in the stillness of those hours, he communicates to us. Without a two-way communication, there is no fellowship. Without fellowship, there's no joy. In my life, John 15, 7 is perhaps the best summary of the two-wayness, the bi-directional character of communion with the living Lord. It goes like this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. There's two-way communication in that verse. The words of Jesus abide in me. Do you believe that when you read the words of Scripture, the living Christ is addressing you? I do. If I didn't, I would resign this afternoon. When we read the Bible, the almighty Christ is speaking just as though he were standing in the pulpit or kneeling with us by our bed. Don't ever say, I can't hear Christ. Don't ever say God is silent unless you leave your Bible closed on the shelf. He is not silent. He speaks loud and clear in his word for those who will go to him and listen. Therefore, mingle your hour of prayer with meditation. Tom and Dean and I went away to pray together for a few hours last Monday. And you know how we did it? We just sat down on the couch away where we couldn't be bothered and read the whole book of Colossians in seven sections, 11 sections, and stopped and prayed between every section. It was rich. If you want to pray an hour, take Colossians, divide it into 11 sections, and pray for two or three minutes between each section. And your prayer life will explode with two-way communication. The living Christ will descend and address you. And then you will pour out your longings to him and enjoy the fellowship that makes joy full. The other reason that prayer produces fullness of joy is that prayer is the means by which God gives us the power to do what we love to do. Verse 24 of this text says, of uh, chapter 16, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Fellowship with Jesus is essential, but if it doesn't spill over to other people in powerful fruit bearing, we will feel frustrated. If you bottle all of your fellowship with the Lord up and don't become a stream flowing down the mountainside of your life, it will go stagnant. A Christian can't be happy and stingy because it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so the second reason why prayer gives us fullness of joy is because through it, God gives the power to love. If your pump of love has run dry, it's because the pipe of prayer isn't deep enough. Now, let me sum up where we've been. The Bible plainly teaches 
that in everything we do, our aim should be to glorify God. And the Bible clearly teaches that in everything we do, we should pursue the fullness of our joy with all our heart and with all our soul. And some theologians have tried to cause us to rend these two goals apart by asking, are you willing to be damned for the glory of God? But the Bible does not force you to choose between glorifying God and pursuing your own joy. In fact, it forbids it. If you try to make that disjunction and exalt the one over the other, you will fail in your quest to glorify God. For he is not glorified unless we delight in him. Prayer pursues joy by pursuing fellowship with the Lord and the power to share that fellowship with others. And prayer pursues the glory of God by acknowledging that we are paralyzed, bankrupt, and by looking away from ourselves to him, a reservoir of hope and power. So I close by combining the two texts. Ask and you will receive that the Father may be glorified in the Son and that your joy may be full. And let me give you one final exhortation, very practically. I don't think I'm wrong, am I, in saying that the reason many of us don't have the life of prayer we wish we did is not because we don't want to, but because we don't plan to. If you want to take a four-week vacation in the summer, do you get up one morning and say, hey, let's take a four-week vacation today. Let's start today. No, you won't have anything ready. You won't know where to go. Nothing is planned. And that's exactly the way most of us treat our prayer life. We get up every day. Oh, yes, I'm supposed to have significant prayer today. Nothing's ready. We don't know where to go. There's been no plan. We don't have a procedure, no place, no time, no text. You know as well as I do that the opposite of planning is not spontaneous, consistent, rich, overflowing prayer. The opposite of planning is the rut. Right? You always degenerate without planning into the lowest ebb of spiritual vitality. There is an inescapable inertia in our flesh that drags us down. There's a fight to be fought. There's a race to be won. Therefore, my admonition is this. This afternoon, or at least before you go to bed tonight, set aside ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay, to plan to pray. Not to pray, just to plan to pray. That is, look at your life, weigh your priorities. I do this, 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 and this. How does the importance of prayer rank up? Set a time, set a place, choose a text. It'll revolutionize your week. Let's pray. Almighty God, 
There is nothing that would cause fullness of joy at Bethlehem more than if we became a people of prayer. And you would be exalted on the pillars of our prayer. And the goal of our creation would be achieved. Grant, O God, that all within the hearing of my voice set aside ten minutes this day, or however long it takes, to plan renewal by the power of the Holy Spirit into their lives.